This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. So you're not seeing other people from a place of pride. You're seeing other people from your lowered place of humility before that text. And then you stop viewing others as beneath you or as other. And so it becomes this freedom to be just in the world, to see what other people deserve rather than trying to take for yourself, rather than trying to claim your place. And so for me, literature moves out to others even though it begins inwardly. Do you tend to read nonfiction or do you love a good story? Well, in this conversation with Jessica Hooten Wilson, we talk about how reading and particularly how reading stories can form us as people. It's not something often that we think about as important to our spiritual practices. But listen in to this conversation with Jessica Hooten Wilson as we talk about how reading can be a spiritual practice. She's the author of the book, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. Enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right. It's really fun to welcome Jessica Hooten Wilson to the podcast. She has a book coming out that will be out at the end of March called The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. So it's going to be so fun to have her here. Thanks for being here, Jessica. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Ashley. You are welcome. So tell us kind of what, how did reading kind of grip you? You talk really early in the book about the two novels that really formed kind of your childhood imagination. So we'd love to hear what are those and then how has that helped you kind of view reading maybe as a spiritual practice? Yeah, when I was a little kid, I mean, I started reading all the illustrated classics and I loved those, I think more than... I wouldn't say regular books, but whatever was being assigned to you in elementary school yeah. didn't mm-hmm. activate me as much as those stories. And I remember especially being drawn, not to the illustrated versions, but my dad, once he realized I loved Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, he gave me the original Mark Twain stories. Yeah, And I loved them so much. Those were actually the first books I read more than once. Like even that was a revelation. I remember I finished them on a road trip. My dad's like, well, read it again because we were out. Yeah. That's what I had in my head. Right, right. Yeah. Read it again? Um, <laughs> and then my dad also gave me Once in Future King by T.H. White. So I really loved stories that were adventures. So it didn't matter if it was, you know, the Tom Sawyer kind of adventure in your hometown, or if it was the big, magnificent, otherworldly adventure of T.H. White. But I really wanted to feel like life was an adventure. So even this book is, you know, the adventure of sanctity comes up over and over again, because I think mm. the Christian journey should be viewed that way, right? As this adventure. Yeah. I remember reading Tom Sawyer 
like probably maybe in sixth grade, like by the headlights, you know, <laughs> behind us <laughs> with a friend on a road trip. It was, yeah, one of those first books that really sucked me in, you know, because I think, and I wonder, you know, I wonder raising my own children a little bit, like with the internet and things like that, if they've lost, you know, that we're still a reading family, but sometimes I worry if we've lost some, some of that magical aspect of reading of just getting sucked in. Yeah. Although Harry Potter does that. So. Yeah. Well, my, I mean, my kids are obsessed with reading. My, my oldest is eight and yeah. she is just such an Anglophile. Like she reads, you know, the illustrated Dickens and the illustrated Austin. And she just loves the stories. She loves yeah. getting into those different worlds that are unlike her own. And, um, and we read the Green Ember series. That's what we're reading yeah. right now. Yeah. 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 That's magical. That's whimsical. I love those. Yes. And I'm trying, now I'm trying to resource my, my teen boys and still give them some good, good novels. So yeah, it's, it's tricky, but um, I would love to talk about, you know, besides just good book recommendations, Mm -hmm. how does reading form us and how, what is that connection between reading good literature, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Literature doesn't have to be classic necessarily, but how does reading literature then like form us in holiness? So can you draw that connection for us? Sure. I think it was easier for the early church to imagine all the ways that reading was good for you. And so you have writers like Augustine and Origen saying reading is a spiritual practice. And then we kind of lose that idea the more that we get immersed in other literature. But even fathers like St. Basil, right, the great, was talking about, no, reading is a spiritual practice. Also reading Homer would be a spiritual practice. And the reason why is because it prepares you for reading the world, for reading other people, mm-hmm. reading the Bible, that the practice is forming you in this habit of a way of being, right? This humility, this listening to other people, this imaginative, what could the world be? What should the world be? And all of that ideas of even the virtue of hope depend on that ability to imagine mm-hmm. a world other than the one that is. And, and really even the one that is to see beneath the surface of what is. And that requires a habit of reading and a practice of reading. And so, so for me, I, I feel like the church, if we could have more and more literature in Sunday schools, kind of helping us with this preparation and really changing us from the malformation of the world towards the formation that God intended, right? To be more, um, more saturated with words and in the word. Yes, you're speaking my language. <laughs> you know, I, just, I there's so much I think I I just geek out on like what does it look like to actually help develop a Christian imagination? And a lot of it is being invited into stories. And I think unfortunately, at least in the evangelical world, we've tended to say that like there's these kind of stories that are secular and then, you know, the the Christian story which is sacred and that they don't overlap. You know, how might we begin to actually like you're saying, Augustine and Origen and Basil talking about like actually reading helps to develop the imagination so that then you can be formed by the story of scripture and be empathetic and love our neighbors. Mm-hmm. So what might that look like, you know, in our own personal lives, our communities, our churches to begin to reclaim reading as a spiritual practice? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm currently in writing that book. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> like- <laughs> Perfect. So, um, <laughs> that book comes out in for with Brazos in 2023 right. March. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's reclaiming this is the a really practice. this is a really good just you know 
let, not only is this one coming out soon, the yes. scandal of holiness, but then, you know, we'll just be, yeah, everyone will be really excited for that one and can wait another year. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this is very much my mission is to, you know, I was doing this in the classroom and the reason I'm writing these books is because I've seen that it works in the classroom. I'm not, I'm not just coming up with something out of the air. I've seen the teaching great books and teaching great literature for, I've been teaching 17 years and I've taught all ages. I've taught elementary all the way through graduate school and adult learners. And I've watched the way people have transformed. I've watched where they have been enslaved to the culture, where they've been kind of locked into some paradigms or hmm. even, even depressed because they couldn't see them themselves out of whatever situation they were in. And I've watched how literature has opened them up, have has liberated them. I mean, you think of that beautiful scene in Shawshank Redemption, you know, where they play the music yep. over the loudspeakers and it's like suddenly something in their soul gets turned on that there is more than what they were currently living in, in this imprisoned reality. And that's what literature can do. If you walk into a classroom of the most, you know, hard hearted junior hires or college <laughs> yeah, students, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. It, and you read poetry. It's amazing. They don't turn off. They don't shut down. They open up. And it happens every single time. They Their souls are being invited. And, and so this whole idea that like nobody's listening or nobody's paying attention or students don't love poetry anymore. It's like, have you read a poem? Right. Right. Or are you just trying to dissect the poem, you know, or like, you know, yes. plumb the meaning instead of actually just relishing the, the play or the sound of words. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and taking it apart and um, you know, I, I'm writing in this book currently, but I compared it to this dissection of the cadaver. And of course, that's going to be a lifeless exercise rather than what actually happens when you read, which is breathing text and, you know, life into something like you're, you're participating in the same way that God calls Ezekiel, mm -hmm. you know, and says, witness what I can do with dry bones, witness what I can do with these words that are just on the page and how they come alive. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that look like, you know, in a church context? Um, yeah. Help us walk through how we might in our churches practice reading well to open up our imaginations to things of God. Um, you know, is it just book clubs or is it something more? Well, I think it has to begin in the word. And of course, the biblical lens by which you view all other literature. And I don't mean as, just as simple as reading something in light of scripture, you know, quoting scripture to make sure it makes sense. I don't mean that. I mean, in, in the same way that, so Jesus Christ is the word of God. <laughs> and then we are called to imitate right. God. So we are supposed to live forth the Bible. We're supposed to embody the word in the world. Like all of those things are, you need an imagination to even imagine what that looks like, right? Because it's just so mysterious. So when it comes to how to become better readers, how to live out books. I do think that the more we have churches practicing these kinds of books, these engagement with the arts, with literature, with stories, the more that we're formed by stories and we think in terms of stories and we look at other people as a story that God is writing it's a different approach mm. to a person. It, it fights against a lot of mm -hmm. what the culture is telling us, that we are consumers, that we are partial, that we only play roles in each other's lives rather than 
we're characters participating in one another's stories. So I think that, you know, Sunday school, I've even have tried to imagine a way of taking my book because there's devotionals at the end of every chapter. And is there a way that I could turn that into a Sunday school class at my church where, you know, we were reading novels together and we were practicing, practicing this way of reading devotionally and reading spiritually together. Also, you know, I'm in book clubs. I'm always in book clubs trying to have these conversations for, you know, how people are being formed by what they're reading and what are they reading. And um, a lot of times it also turns into like, what else could you be reading that would ask more of you than what you just chose? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you can help be that kind of opening force as well, right? Mm-hmm. Hope so. <laughs> you you quote um, Alistair McIntyre in your introduction talking about, um, we can't answer the question, what ought I to do before knowing of which story am mm-hmm. I a part? And I think, you know, we are story making creatures and oftentimes we don't actually articulate that clearly enough, mm-hmm. you know, in our, you know, spiritual practices and in the understanding of how we relate to God mm-hmm. and other people. Um, but what have these stories that, that have become a part of you in, in, in the current book, <laughs> The Scandal of Holiness, what have they taught you about who you are and how have you entered into those stories? Uh, maybe you just want to pick one of them, you know, that you, you address in the book as a way into some of those questions about how do we begin to find ourselves in stories and, and to think in terms of stories and to then be able to articulate that. Yeah. Well, let me elaborate on something that's not found in the book, but mm-hmm. by elaborating on this book, I think you'll get to see what I do in other books because a lot of the books that are in there are so beautiful. You know, I was changed by Loris, and if you read the book, I'll get you know you get to hear that or by A Lesson Before Dying. But recently, I was reading In This House of Greed by Rumor Godden, and I think it's just another example mm-hmm. of this way of reading that's continuing for me. This wasn't like an exercise and then it ended. This is something that I still do. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that book, you know, I'm in the midst of making some life decisions, and there's some need for discernment, and I'm watching this book in my mind. Like, I'm remembering it and how this main character, her name is, uh, is Philippa, And she, in the 1960s, she becomes this amazing woman of the world. Back in the 60s when you only had a choice to be either a a wife and mother or a secretary, and those were kind of your big choices in life. And instead, she comes to almost run a company at the start of this novel. And yet the very Mm -hmm. opening of the novel is she gives it all up and joins a monastery. Mm -hmm. And the whole time she's fighting against her way of ruling things and running things. And she has all these talents to see how things work. And she's so competent. And she tries to give that all up to give to God, to relinquish her freedom. And by the end of the novel, not to do too much of a spoiler, God instead calls her from all the things that she was and says, no, that's still what I want. I'm just going to use it for me. Use it for God. And so it's not like she had to get rid of all the talents that she had or all the ambitions that she had. She just had to stop making them worldly, you know, so that God could do something amazing with it. And so right now, like I'm I'm in a period of discernment and it keeps coming up in my head, this idea of what obedience means. Obedience does not mean that I stop being a writer or that I, you know, I stop speaking the way I love public speaking. I love having podcasts. I love having conversations. I don't stop doing those things. I give them over to God so he can do something meaningful mm. with them that will last mm-hmm. me. And just that, that book has really sunk into me and tried to, to help mm. me reimagine what it is that I even see my obedience looking like in my life. Yeah. You know, and I think, and books can really help us 
you know, they can help make sense of our own lives and they can also, you know, good novels can then help us to kind of move outward as well. How have you seen that kind of aspect of love your neighbor um, and the ways that it forms us outward as well? Yeah, I think um, I always end up quoting Alan Jacobs in like every day of my life, but but (laughs) he's got some good books (laughs) and he's, you know, I disagree with him on some things, but it's that even, even disagreeing with him makes me so much stronger. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Ideas. Um, So yeah, I'm probably petting his ego. I hope he never hears these things, but um, (laughs) he, he writes somewhere that the greatest Christian freedom is injustice Mm -hmm. because Really, like if you imagine, and this isn't him, but this I'm just going to use that quote as a framework for what I'm talking about. If you imagine that a book can read you, yeah. right, and that you lay yourself bare before it, in that sense, it takes on this iconic perspective. Like another is looking at you, and hopefully, you know, the eternal coming through the other's eyes and looking at you. And so yeah. it starts with this place of self reflection. And, and Flannery O'Connor said that all of her stories move to that place of self reflection where you realize what you aren't. And you realize that truth is higher than you. And so that first move to know that what we lack is producing humility in us. And then we see others. So you're not seeing other people from a place of pride. You're seeing other people from your lowered place of humility before that text. And then you stop Mm -hmm. viewing others as beneath you or as other or as outside of you because of that humility you've been granted and given right? And experience mm-hmm. with that book. And so it becomes this freedom to be just in the world, to see what other people deserve rather than trying to take for yourself, rather than trying to claim your place. And so for me, literature moves out to others, even though it begins inwardly, right? Because it, it thickens and, and substantiates the soul in such a way that you have um, better eyes by which to see other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. You know, the ways in which it has formed your character in some ways, you know, so that then as you operate in the world, that that becomes how you operate in the world. Yeah. And how you see that, I mean, Maria Skovetsova says um, every person is an incarnate icon. So every person around us can also do that for us, right? They mm-hmm. People can view us as icons and we can also view them as icons. And so there's this exchange, this reciprocation of, of kind of, reading one another and, um, and seeing each other well mm-hmm. that can happen right between neighbors. And and that's why I don't think reading is ultimately a self-serving activity. It yeah. has to be more of a communal activity. So I, I, I take issue with people who say that what I'm doing by writing this way is, is I'm talking about something that's an elite activity or it's a self-serving right. activity or it's a self-improvement or it's not isolating in that sense. Reading should be very much um, a way of pushing you back out into the world um, yeah. from the book and with the book, right? Yes. Yes. I agree. I love going for a walk and it's not just moving my body. I find that walking like neuroscientists have told us is actually good for so much. The brain works differently, new neural pathways are created, we're more creative, and it's not just the brain. As we walk, we can actually grow and enlarge our souls. So I want to invite you this Lenten season to walk at a human pace. I am going to have a 40-day meditative companion for you as you go on a walk this Lenten season. 
I will read some scripture to you and ask you some thoughtful questions to help prepare not only your body, but your mind, heart, and soul as we all walk towards Easter this Lent. It'll be available for purchase on March 1st. And if you want a reminder, head to my website at aahales.com. To get a reminder, go to aahales.com so you will be walking with me at a human pace. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, and there's a sense in which, you know, if we are reading in order to be changed, then we will be more useful out in the world, you know, doing things then, you know. Um, what What do you make, though, of kind of maybe less than stellar reading habits mm-hmm. <laughs> of the American public. Um, you know, that when we tend to read for, and it's not wrong to read for comfort, but, you know, to, to read things that are, you know, brain candy, what mm-hmm. do we, and it's not to say that that's always a bad thing. We always have to read hard things or dark things or something, but, you know, um, yeah. What do you make of the reading diet of the American public and what, might Christians think about their reading habits as formative and what would be a healthier reading diet? Yeah, I think diet is the right, right way of choosing it. So it's it's in the same way we have like a food pyramid. You know, when you have a food pyramid, you don't make up the bulk of it with cotton candy. <laughs> right. And, you know, yeah. like yeah. maybe that's the end of it. And even then I'd want to exchange cotton candy for creme brulee or something. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean you don't have to have like the fat and the sugar? Like you can enjoy some of those things that you know um, are not like uh, G.K. Chesterton called it a defense of penny dreadfuls. You know, G.K. Yeah. Chesterton does not say make up your entire reading habit of co- penny dreadfuls, which are comic books. Like yeah, comic books are fine, but they make up a small portion of your reading life. You know, romance novels. Okay. They're a small portion of your reading life if you, you know, want those things. Um, but they shouldn't be the big chunk. (laughs) That's not where Mm -hmm. you're going to get the protein. That's not where you're going to get the nourishment. That's not where you're going to get the vitamins and minerals. That's, and even those other things, you know, that are kind of on top of your, of your reading, um, they should feel extraneous because they're not life-changing. They may be mere entertainment, but the bulk of your diet should be made up of things that are entertaining and edifying, right? 
um, mm-hmm. delighting and instructing you. This is like back to Horace. Like this is VC stuff, right? Like this is a long time people have been thinking about that combination and the necessity mm-hmm. of the combination to make it happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because that's really where transformation happens, right? Is you know, if if our affections, back to Augustine, right, aren't moved, we aren't going to be changed in some way. You know, if it's simply instruction without delight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, I love it. And yeah, we should probably, I'm like, read older. I always tell people, like, read older stuff too. <laughs> like, we have to also be, uh, become friends with other times and other places uh, that way. Yeah. I mean, Chesterton says, um, that, you know, the problem currently is that we have this great grand ideal of equality um, and democracy, and yet we leave out uh, the largest audience of people who, you know, have the problem of being dead. And so <laughs> yeah. we, we don't give them a say in what we do, even though they, they mat, by mass <laughs> outweigh all of us who are living. And um, if we're so about equality, why are we not reading the dead? Why are we not to the you know, those older voices. Mm -hmm, And and mm -hmm. even in this culture, there's so many books that come out all the time and you have no way of knowing which ones are going to last and which ones are speaking beyond their time and which ones are prophetic and which ones are drawing on the tradition. And, um, but you know, some of those other books have proven themselves able to withstand times and countries and cultural shifts and, um, you know, idea changes, and they still are asking those enduring questions that have lasted through all of that. So you want to be rooted in that. You want to have even a way of conversing with contemporary books that draws on that great tradition of, yes. of ideas. Yes. Yes. That's great. Um, for those who maybe don't tend to jump into fiction, what would you, how would you encourage them to try? Yeah. The idea folks <laughs> that just want to read the hard nonfiction stuff. Yeah. It's, um, you know, most, I would say most ethicists of Christian ethicists of the 20th century were constantly trying to turn people back to story as a context for mm-hmm. ethics. So mm-hmm. Russell Moore wrote something years ago saying, um, the 10 commandments do not take place out of a context of story. The Lord begins even the didactic, here's my 10 things by saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, right? So there's always has to be a story in which the ethics take place. And so if you're reading only nonfiction, you're getting all the didacticism apart from the story. So how then do you live that, right? You need kind of this way of seeing how things are lived out. And that's why Jesus told so many parables. That's why so much of the Bible is this collection of stories. And so people having this kind of hesitancy of fiction, I think a lot of it has to do is they they don't know how to read the ethics within the story. So they, so they walk away thinking, I just read a story, but they didn't look for the ways that the ethics or the theology was playing in that work. And, um, and so it's easy for them to just grapple with the ethics, but then they're missing the narrative. So the things have to be brought together. I, I do theology and literature. You know, I study both and try to bring them into conversation with one another. So what would that look like, you know, if we were, if you were going to take like one of Jesus' parables, how would mm-hmm. the idea of story help all, you know, if you were teaching class or, you know, we were just having a conversation, which we are here on the podcast, <laughs> you know, but like what, what would that look like to be able to combine those two? Yeah. And Jesus does a great job. I'm trying to remember the exact passage. Is it like Matthew? 
13 is what I want to say it is. And I hope I'm getting that correct. But remember where he tells the parable about the seeds and then he says, okay, let me explain to you then what it means. And that's a way of having both, right? Of showing both. And he doesn't do that all the time, but he does teach them how to read in that chapter of the Bible in which he says like, here's what the four seeds, you know, the four types of soil mean. This and then they're, the they come are. and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then he explains it. Yeah. Yeah. And when he explains it, even at the end, he says, um, now go and be scribes in the world or something. Like he even says like, okay, now that you've done that, like go, so now go tell stories and explain what they mean to everybody. Like mm. this is now your time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now that you've heard this, that would be your next move. And I think that's the part that we forget is that Jesus gave us this model for telling stories in order to explain transcendental or mysterious truths about the world and then tells his disciples to be scribes and do this. And, and we need to be doing that. Like that is part of the call of the gospels is to tell these stories and then unpack them for people. And, and so I love this, you know, Lauren Winter called me out because I talk so much about passionately about the love of story. And then I'm writing a book that's not a novel. <laughs> right. I know. So I said, but essentially what I'm doing is I'm trying to teach novels to lead you to novels. So I'm I'm doing the second part of what Jesus does in, in telling the parable is he then explains what the parable means. Yeah. So I do think we need that second part. We have to explain the stories, but I have nothing to explain if you haven't read the stories. Right. You need to first. Yeah. Or you know, it becomes kind of a, a oh, I want to go now experience that story firsthand because this guide mm-hmm. has brought me to to this story. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, something else about fiction that I think people have a misunderstanding about how much fun it is and how joyful it is and how playful it is. Mm-hmm. They, they have this idea that if a book is going to teach me something, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And really unfun. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I think that that's why this book, I stuck mostly with 20th century novel. Like, these are not inaccessible books. Yep. These are not hard books. Um, they are from all different traditions, but you know, they're all been translated well into English and good versions and um, and so none of them are, are written in a stylistic way of like, you know, the 1600s right. and there's like these big hurdles right. for you to get You're to. You're struggling through Dante or Milton or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The language of these things that I chose, the syntax, it's all really accessible to people. Yes. Yes. So many good questions. Yeah. And I did love Lauren Winner's forward in, in your book. It was great. She always asks really hard questions too. I'm like, ah. um, yep. But I think, you know, to, to, to even just say, okay, reading forms us, it forms our imagination. It helps us, you know, for those of us who, you know, listeners who may not love novels as much as me, um, I think just the, the invitation that it actually reorients how we view the world um, is a really good beginning place. How has your reading life then kind of illuminated scripture for you or your understanding of, of reading the Bible? Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah. Cause the Bible to me is such a, a way of forming how I've read literature and now you're taking the question backwards. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It, in some ways they all, it's a, it's a conversation. You can't be like, well, I, you know, it's, you know, especially if you, if you grew up reading novels and reading the Bible, you're, you know, you're obviously, mm-hmm. it's a conversation rather than like one is, you know, right. obviously influencing the other, but I don't know if you're able to articulate some of that, the ways in which reading has opened up your experience of the Bible as well. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what um, the Bible, if you've grown up in this tradition, it becomes overly familiar to you mm-hmm. and perhaps you don't understand the power of certain phrases 
or the power of certain ideas that are in scripture. For example, love, which um, Walker Percy says that the word love has been like a well-worn poker chip, right? It's kind of lost its value after a while. And so you read something like 1 Corinthians 13, and it's it's read even at weddings where people don't believe in Jesus, right? And it's read as this idea of love. But then you read something like the Brothers Karamazov, mm-hmm. where you have Father Zosima telling this woman who wants to go be a missionary overseas, like, well, that's a nice idea. (laughs) But are you loving your daughter really well right now? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love Dimitri? And of course, over the, you know, while reading the novel, you realize she doesn't know what love means. Love for her is this idea. And she even admits to him, you're right. If I went over and was a missionary overseas and they didn't appreciate my sacrifice, or if they didn't you know, start praising me for my heroic deed, I would start hating them. And so you, you have the way of seeing love that kind of unpacks Corinthians 13. So it's the story unpacking the ideas there that Paul gives. And, and that's what literature I think has done for me is tested even the ways I've understood some of these phrases, like love is patient, love is kind. But then you see Father Zosima saying, Love means the patience you extend to those who every single day try your patience, right? And um, and being able to see that in in that context, like patience, even in um, the story, you have this Yvonne saying he can't stand adults because he can understand loving children, but adults smell and they're mean and they're you know, he like goes through these things, you know, they're ugly and like he just can't stand adults, like he just wants to imagine these beautiful, beautiful little caricatured versions of children that he comes up with in his mind's eye and, and how different that is from what love should actually look like in practice. So novels have taught me, I, I think in that way, um, what scripture has already showed me to be the truth. Right. And it, yeah. And it reinvigorates. Yeah. Some of those well-worn phrases mm-hmm. and stories. Um, yeah. New translations can do that too sometimes, yes. right? Even just getting out of the wheel ruts of what we're used to. Um, you know, I think too story, you know, it bypasses kind of the thinking part of our brain too, like that, you know, that the left side of our brain or the prefrontal cortex or any of that. And I'm not sure on my neuroscience, (laughs) but, um, you know, it gets to something in us Mm -hmm. that kind of is almost precognitive, Mm -hmm. um, so that we're able then to then find words for it, hopefully in scripture too, you know, but it, that it kind of helps us get to some place so that then we need words for it. Right. I think a, you know, imagination is a way of knowing. And I think people forget that. Um, so yeah. they think of knowing only in terms of rationalization or intellect, right. but, but so much of the things you know about God, you have to imagine. Right. You can't actually know by rational argument. Not all of it right. is going to be provable by reason. And therefore, it transcends reason, not that it's against reason, right? Our God's not an irrational God. Right. Um, but imagination can take us to those transrational places. Mm-hmm. And I think we need that ability to, to understand the mystery of God, to really be able to live into the mystery of who God is. Mm-hmm. What's one of your favorite novels that you keep returning to? Oh, over and over. I mean, Brothers K is like a, you know, it's kind of an easy go-to. Um, the Brothers Kar- Karamazov has completely transformed my way of seeing the world. It's probably the number one book that I've ever read <laughs> that I go back and yeah. with, um, a lot regularly. So also, I mean, also if I think of um, Confederacy of Dunces is one of my favorite that I could reread for fun just for kicks. Yeah. Violet yeah. Barrett Away. I love 
I love teaching people a violent barrier way. And I don't just mean in a classroom and I love sharing it at book clubs. I love, because it's so striking and it's so memorable. Mm-hmm. It makes such, mm-hmm. such an impact on people. Um, Kristen Lovren's daughter, I'm a big proselytizer of Kristen Lovren's daughter. <laughs> and uh, I try to, I try to get everyone that I can to read that book. Cause it's just, it's an epic nice. story, but of the life of a mom, you know, like, Yes. yes. You don't have to be more there, you know? So we need a lot yeah. more of those kind of epic, like mothers have these deep soul filled lives. And um, we have these Augustinian back and forth between my will and God's will conversations. Yeah. Um, so I love that. I love that novel and I love its premise. So that is great. Well, you'll have to send me those and we'll get those links in the show notes for sure for our listeners. Um, but as we conclude, thank you for your, your good thoughts, but we would love to hear your laundry routine. <laughs> and yes, the, because yeah, I, the little tagline here at finding holy is that big things matter, but so does the laundry. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe that novel has something to tell us about the epic struggle of laundry, but we would love to hear your, your just regular old laundry routine. Um, mine is to not get it done. Uh, that's yeah. my that's my regular laundry routine. <laughs> um, I I ask all the kids. I have an eight, seven, and four year old. So I ask my eight and seven to bring down their baskets. Um, I'm hoping to get to a stage in life where they bring down their baskets and do their laundry. Yes. Um, but right now it probably sits in three baskets on the floor of my bedroom for a week at a time. Yeah. <laughs> <my> <laughs> When I married my husband, I warned him very much. um, I'm not going to be a great homemaker, but I write great books. (laughs) Yes. And so we can have really good conversations, but the executive functioning is lower on the skill set. Yes, that's me too. (laughs) This is why my husband does our laundry. Yeah. And my children are now old enough to do their laundry, but unfortunately it never gets really folded, but at least it gets clean. Yeah. Stays in their basket. We'll get there eventually, maybe. It's a step ahead to even get that far. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you for writing a really fascinating book, and we'll look forward to the next one as well. Um, And it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and to chat about the scandal of holiness. Thank you. Friends, thanks so much for being here. You can grab a copy of Jessica's most recent book, The Scandal of Holiness, at a link in the show notes, and you can connect with her on social media. I hope you will pick up a copy of her book and maybe even pick up a copy of the several novels that she works through so that you might begin to see reading as a spiritual practice for your own life. I want to leave you, as we do every episode, with one small step, something practical that you can take into your week. So as we think through art and limits, what do we actually do on a random Monday or Tuesday afternoon? Well, I want to encourage you to pick up a novel. That's it. That's your small step. Pick up a novel and read one chapter. Sometimes I can get overwhelmed with my amount of reading. I have about 20 books right in front of me on my desk that I need to get through. And so novels sometimes feel superfluous. I realize that's ridiculous coming from someone who has a PhD in English literature. I love reading. And yet reading can sometimes feel like it's not worth our time. So what I've been doing recently, and I would encourage you to do, is to simply read one chapter of one novel. You can even pick up multiple books and just read one chapter. 
finishing is not the point. The point is to practice getting into stories. And stories help shape us and novels help shape us because our God is a storytelling God and he welcomes us into story. And so as we practice reading good stories, we begin to have our imaginations grow so that we can also learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you, and I cannot wait to hear what sort of novel you pick up and what's on your reading list. You can always chat with me on Instagram or Twitter at AAHales. I would love to hear what you are reading. And if you have a moment, I would encourage you to leave a review for the Finding Holy podcast so we can continue making great content about the things that matter. Remember, friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.